Welcome to the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, do you know how I got interested in markets and stuff? Um, I have a sort of vague memory that you started trading, I want to say tech stocks in the 1990s. I'm sure we've spoken about this before. You're right. I think we have. And I think you basically have it right. One summer, I think it was summer 98, I made $2,000 over the course of a summer from my summer job. And then I, uh, and then in 19... Wait, what was your summer job? I don't really remember what I did, to be honest. I think I had a that few, That says like, it all, that you only remain, remember, I only remember the money. stocks. You don't remember the normal jobs. Yeah, I don't remember the yeah. normal stuff. <laughs> but I remember having $2,000 from a uh, summer job. You know, it was the late 90s, and everyone was super interested in stocks and markets because there was a bubble going on. And I invested that money and tried to trade, and I... I grew it tenfold, so I grew it to uh, $20,000, and I've been uh, hooked on markets ever since. Okay, so that's a total humble brag, but let me just ask you, before I start asking about your trading strategy, how did you even know to start trading stocks? I don't remember. It was just what people were doing. Like That was the thing I think that like people don't necessarily remember. They look back at the bubble of the late 90s, and they, they know that stocks went up, but I don't think they remember like how pervasive it was as uh, part of the culture. And it was just like what people were doing was what people were talking about. Very similar to say like people talking about uh, cryptocurrencies in 2017 and 2018. It just became like this cultural phenomenon. So here's my other question. How did you actually trade? And, you know, full disclosure, in the 1990s, I would have been in middle school, but I would have had no idea exactly how to get started. Well, I had a good friend. He worked for his father's investment company. But uh, I remember there were just ads on TV for all these online brokerages. And there was this one. I actually used this uh, website called SureTrade. I'm not really sure what happened to it. But I think they had these ads on TV for $7 a trade, and I just signed up and filled out some paperwork and stuff like that. And next thing you know, uh, there you there you went. You could just buy and sell stock. Next thing you know, you have $20,000. Exactly. That's pretty good. Uh, I got really lucky because I studied abroad my sophomore year in college, and so I didn't lose all my money because I stopped trading. <laughs> Otherwise, I definitely would have gone to zero because I would have just been like everyone else. So I did. I did end up slightly positive for the bubble. And you weren't tempted to start currency trading while you were abroad? No, I didn't. Anyway, Very good. the reason I bring this up is not just to brag, but because today we are going to be talking about the online brokerage business, which was a huge part of what made that period so special was this idea, as you put it, that you didn't really need to know anything. You could just go to a website and start trading. It was much simpler and cheaper than it had ever been before. And that business obviously is still around and grown, uh, but that really is like when it sort of got going. Yeah, and this still crops up nowadays. You know, you see people pointing to uh, certain advertisements coming out of various of the Mm -hmm. big internet brokerages, and people say, oh, well, this is evidence that the stock market rally has gone too far. You know, people are just coming in to make some easy money now. So brokerages still play an important part when it comes to measuring sentiment around the stock market. Yeah, and what's interesting to me and what I want to get into on today's episode is Back then in the late 90s, there was this sort of like obsession with individual stocks and the Internet stocks and Yahoo and eBay and Amazon and all these stocks that were making people a fortune. These days, there's such a mantra around don't try to beat the market, just focus on reducing fees. 
passive is best. And so the the message that people at home are being sent in terms of how they should think about investing uh, is very, very different than it was two decades ago. Nonetheless, uh, people do still trade and they trade uh, through these retail brokerages and uh, online at home. So I'm very interested in uh, sort of learning about how that world has uh, changed since then. Yeah, so am I. And as you put it, it is a really interesting flip. Like if you go online nowadays to personal finance message boards, no one's saying buy this particular stock because it's going to make you rich. They're saying put all your money in a passive index fund and just write that all the way up. Yeah, exactly right. All right. Well, with us to discuss the evolution of the online trading business is a, a veteran of the space we have with us today on Odd Lots, Chris Larkin. He's the Senior Vice President of Trading at E-Trade, one of the uh, longtime stalwarts of the industry. And he's been in the space for a long time. And so we'll uh, learn about all this stuff and uh, get some perspective about how things are the same and how things have changed. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for making me feel very old as you guys tell your stories. <laughs> no, I, 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 I kind of go too. farther back and I'm thinking to myself, okay, uh, I try to feel young, but today I feel old with the two of you talking. I, I, what I said is like, oh, that's been two decades since then. It hit me really hard even when I said it. It's very bizarre. Uh, but why don't you tell us how you got your start in the space and what you, your sort of your career path in the world of online trading? Yeah, my, my first job at a college was with a firm called Waterhouse Securities. It was a small discount brokerage firm, which offered you know self-directed uh, clients to call in and place trades uh, for individual stocks, mutual funds, uh, and those products. At the time, ETFs weren't really around, right? So they were sort of new. And Charles Schwab and uh, Waterhouse were sort of the, the the bigger firms that were out there at the time. And we were just at the when you thought about the technology at that uh, given point in time, was the internet was just starting to come to light. So it was still a little bit early at that point in time. Everything was very manual. So just think about how a client had no information. They had a call for a quote on IBM. There was no other way to right. get one unless you just saw the paper the next day. They had to call to place orders. They had to get, everything was done manually. And what year was this? This was 1991. So, you know, the period between 1991 and 96, uh, it was very manual. Then things really took off when technology started to come together. So how much did the sort of uh, development of online trading platforms and brokerages, how much does that owe to the big tech bubble uh, that we saw in the late 1990s and the excitement around stock trading that Joe was describing? Yeah, I think I think it's accessibility. I think, you know, in terms of the ability that the information was now starting to come to light. So like I said before, if you wanted to get a quote on a stock, you had to call someone up to get that quote. In the sort of the 90s, you started to get the ability, you know, via computer that you could get real-time quotes, whether you get it through the website or there started to get some more applications where you can get streaming quotes from that as well. These were things that would be unheard of and only available to institutional investors. It started coming to retail clients. So there was just the ability to get the information was much different than it ever was before. I remember, like, even the idea of real-time quotes versus 15-minute delay quotes was this huge thing back then. And, you know, having access to an online brokerage versus just sort of like a normal, like, public-facing website, like Yahoo Finance was pretty big at the time, was a really exciting thing about being at some sort of paid service, just the ability to not have something be delayed by 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that was the big thing. I think the thing that was missing at that point in time, so even when you were entering and placing yeah. your first trade, the really all you had was real-time quotes. Right. 
uh, you didn't have research or news or access to a lot of things that eventually came over time as more and more people signed up and people started to enrich their offerings. Uh, they started to add more of the tools and services, which is, you know, again, played a very big part in the evolution of the particular, you know, online investing industry. Was there any resistance to the availability of internet trading? Were people sort of distrustful of the notion that they could buy and sell stocks online? Did they think, oh, I should be doing this through, you know, an actual person in the old fashioned traditional way? Yeah, I think there's, I, I think it really in two ways. One is that I think, you know, technology was starting to come together at that point in time and people weren't quite sure, was it secure? Like, I, you know, my money's somewhere, like, but is it secure if I go online and place a trade? So there were some people that were concerned, but again, there was a lot of things that we put in place to make sure that the security was very solid at that point in time. The other thing was that you also had the, you know, the full service industry at that point in time. I think they spent a lot of, they spend a lot of effort in terms of saying that you can't do it on your own. You need us. This is a, this is Wall Street. You need a professional to help you with your money. Going out there and doing your own, you can never be successful. So I think, you know, they saw the threat. There's a lot of, you know, the industry was growing. It was a threat to their business. So you saw a lot of people trying to say that there's no way someone could do this on their own. Tell us a little bit more about your career. You mentioned you were at Waterhouse in the very early 90s. When did you get into what we now recognize as the online trading business? Yeah, I think so. At that point in time, when I, when I left Waterhouse, I went to the institutional side of the business and I was working for ING Bearings, which mm-hmm. was a full service firm for on the institutional side of the business as a sales trader. Uh, we went through some tough times during the Asian crisis, and when I was trading, what I saw was there was firms like Bloomberg and Instanet that were sort of the forefront of technology from an execution standpoint for uh, buying and selling stocks for institutional investors. Uh, at that point in time, I thought I need to get in front of this, so I did join. I joined Bloomberg at that point in time uh, to. You know, be part of a very successful uh, <laughs> firm. But then when things really started heating up, uh, you know, someone who was a, uh, the number two over at Waterhouse had become the CEO at Daytech Online, uh, which was a very small but very fast-growing firm. What happened to them? I remember Daytech, and that was like a big name at the time. Where did they go? I don't uh, They ended up getting acquired by Ameritrade in 2002, yeah. three in that area. Uh, but they were truly a disruptor in the industry. Right. At that point in time, you know, online trading was available, but there was beyond just the idea of being able to, you know, buy and sell stocks online. Yeah. There wasn't a true disruption, but they took was a true innovator and disruptor in the, in the business. And so uh, they were they were growing at a massive rate at that point in time, like others as well. So how did execution on those platforms work at the time? Were were orders being sent basically through, you know, the traditional market makers? Yeah, well, if you go, I'll just go back in time just for just a quick yeah. thing to give you. It's just you know an idea is that when someone called up and they uh, we were at Waterhouse Securities and you wanted to go buy you know 100 shares of IBM, you would call up and you'd put in a market order. You would hang up the phone and we would call you back at some point in time. We got an execution that could be I don't know an hour or two later. So you would eventually get it back. By the time it was execute, got down there, executed, came back, we'd have to call you back. It was pretty rare to um, get the execution on the phone. At, at Daytech, we were. The ability to, to route orders to other destinations beyond the exchange was starting to become available. We owned a, an ECN called Island ECN. I remember that too. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. that was, again, an, an innovation and you know a differentiator for us. What did ECN stand for? It's Electronic Communications Network. Right. And you know at that point in time, we were able to utilize that in order to get very fast executions back. But when I say fast executions, uh, we had a guarantee, a trading guarantee. So we guaranteed your market order would be executed in less than 60 seconds. So nobody in the industry could match that. 
nobody. So we had a, you know, a pure advantage over other people when it came down to executions and the speed of our executions. Uh, we would execute in 60 seconds or your trade was for free. Uh, today, you get microseconds before your order is executed. So it's less than a second. If you put in a market order, it's less than a second before you get executed. You can't even refresh your screen fast enough right. by the time that order has been executed. <laughs> so you could just see how technology has be- become you know, a, a game changer, I guess, when it comes down to you know, executing orders. So just to be clear, what was it that Daytech had structurally that allowed it to may- be able to make such a promise? The ECN. The, the, the differentiator was the ECN. So we could route orders you know, directly to this ECN and match a buyer and seller and get a report back immediately. And so when you were going to the exchanges, we were, you know, we were pushing them. But if you take an idea of, like, say, the ETFs, let's say at that point in time, the QQQs were, mm-hmm. were available. If you put a market order in for QQQs and send it down to the American Stock Exchange, you, you might wait two minutes for an execution back, three minutes, four minutes. Uh, we started moving our orders onto the, uh, the island DCN, and you'd have an instantaneous execution. So people were very frustrated. They were not, you know, technology was starting to really accelerate, and it was becoming unacceptable to get an execution in, you know, three, four minutes. People wanted to get to a very good execution, and they wanted it quickly. Okay, so customers are now executing trades at 60 seconds or less uh, on the online platforms. Other people are doing it in two or three minutes versus, you know, in the early 90s or 1980s when it might take a couple of hours even to get your trade actually executed and confirmed. Did that change trading behavior, in your opinion? Did people start trading in a different way now that they had virtually instantaneous execution? I think that's part of it. I think the, you know, it's a culmination, I think, of a few things. Obviously, the executions were becoming better, so the access was much better, and the information was much better. Obviously, when you think about uh, as time revolving, you've got the real-time quotes. Um, At this point in time, you know, Daytech had been the first broker to offer free real-time streaming quotes. You had a a quote terminal, you know, per se, where you could put a watch list together and watch a, a whole bunch of stocks. And then I think the, when you think about sort of what was happening at that point in time, you know, the market was going up and there's, there is a flock mentality when things go up. You talked about Bitcoin before. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it, you know, people all of a sudden had a passion for digital currency. It's that people were making money. Right. And there's this like, I don't want to be left out type of a thing. So people start getting involved and saying, I, I want to find a way to make money just like, you know, my neighbor's making a whole bunch of money. So they don't never want to be left out. So there was, you know, the flock mentality that was going on at that point in time, and people were making, you know, irrational decisions. It was pushing companies that were not making money to these yeah. lofty levels. Uh, but when you have a whole bunch of volume coming in, uh, it certainly contributed to sort of um, what was happening at that point in time. But we were also at that. We were also uh, starting to add in other things like education, news. These are things you could, you when you wanted to buy a stock back in the '80s or early '90s, you called up your full service broker. And you'd be lucky if they sold you an annual, like an annual report that was like eight months old. Like there was no information. <laughs> yeah, you can lit- you can now find a whole bunch of, you know, data, whether it be fundamental analysis or technical analysis, right? You know, from your uh, computer terminal. In 1999, early 2000, when the sort of the number of new people entering the market daily, I mean, it got so big that it overwhelmed the systems. Right, there started to be outages at that part because it just the infrastructure still at the time had a hard time um, keeping up with it. Did you, were people worried about that? Were people inside the company or in the companies like worried about like, okay, when, when this bubble bursts or when this can't be sustainable and then there's going to be a lot of people who their first introduction to the stock market is going to be a pretty tough one? 
Yeah, I th- that's a worry for everybody today. I mean, I th- yeah. we've, we've got, obviously gotten much better in the ability to stabilize all the systems and be able to handle the scale that's that's been going on. But back then, it was a big issue that, you know, an outage was not an abnormal thing to happen once a week, especially during the yeah. very busy times. And it's all about how quick you can recover and to make sure that your you know clients were taken care of. And I think that's the main thing. When, when things, there, there's an expectation at some point in time that systems will go down. Uh, but what, what our clients want are us to stand behind that and make sure that we make any adjustments necessary if there was a problem. All right. So uh, Joe and I alluded to this in our intro, but one thing I'm really curious about is who is trading individual stocks nowadays? Because again and again, you know, the emphasis all seems to be on passive investing on index funds. Is anyone still trading actively in individual stocks? Well, I would say, you know, one thing is that we've just come off a record year last year. So I think that, you know, the idea that the last two years, 2017 was a record for us, I would say for the industry, I don't want to just speak just on, you know, E-Trade alone, but it was a record for 2017 and 2018 were both, you know, tremendous years for the industry in general. So clients are definitely still trading online. Um, I think the word actively is, you know, you could debate what actively actually means. When you talk about passive investing, passive investing I would say in general, the average customer is a passive investor. Uh, we, you know, our, our client, you know, base, a very small number of them are what you would define as an active trader or a day trader that some people sure. might want to put in there. Most people are, are actually, actually just putting together a portfolio and buying and holding and making slight adjustments throughout the year. Nonetheless, there is still interest in individual stocks. So do you see any are there any sort of demographics or anything that you could say about the people that say like, no, I don't want to just put half my money in SPY and half my money in a bond fund that let it ride? Like, who are the people that sort of don't accept this idea that they just have to have a passive portfolio? Yeah, I think if you think about, you know, you take the different, uh, I would call them like generations that are out there. So yeah. self-directed clients go, everyone from like 18 years old all the way up to, you know, their 80s and 90s that are that are self-directed trading. And I think what you get is just there's there's a different interest in the stocks that they may or may not like. You know, if you get the older generation, a lot of the you think about sort of the staple stocks that they're familiar with yeah. when they grew up. You know, the IBMs and the, those companies are very familiar with. And then you kind of go into the you know the other side and you think about it like a 20 year old or 24 year old that's uh, buying and selling stocks. Uh, they're interested in other things. It could be you know water stocks or some type of a you know social type of thing or Netflix, things that they're familiar with, like Facebook. Right. I think the older generation, some just don't, are are not using things like this. They don't really care about it. So they're not going to trade it. So it's about the things that they use has always been the interest, no matter how, you know, how young or old you are. Has that always been the case that you see this sort of demographic segmentation of the family of stocks that people buy? Or is that something kind of new in which if you like break it down by age group, whether it's millennials uh, versus older people, you can actually just see a very like dis- different pool of stocks that they're trading. Again, I think a lot depends, and mostly because we've got millions of customers. It's, yeah. you know, it's hard to kind of really fo- hone in on one particular thing. But if, but if you think about the stocks that they're trading, that's one element. The other thing is, depending upon the trader you are, are you know, are you are you an active trader? Yeah. Uh, and do you take advantage of the volatility? Now you're looking for stocks that are volatile, so you don't really care about the name. You really care about the volatility in the stock, and that's what you're more concerned with. So I think a lot has to do with 
the type of investor you are or a trader, um, whether you're using technical analysis or fundamental analysis, or there's an industry that you want to be in a, on and say, hey, I'm a little bit nervous about the market today. I want to get more defensive. Let me go try to find some really high quality defensive stocks. Right. And so you'll spend some time looking at them and saying, all right, which which is the best stock out of this, at this particular group that I actually want to buy uh, for my portfolio? So I think it really depends you know, with the number of customers that we have. So has the shift towards passive investing spurred E-Trade to, to change anything about its business model or to provide you know certain services that are geared more towards passive investors? Yeah, I mean, our, our model has evolved every year it evolves. I mean, I think that when you think about sort of the passive investing topic is that uh, yes, if you, the the growth of the ETFs demonstrates that uh, there is a you know a large interest in clients investing in low cost diversified products. So that's the the data supports the fact that that's the case. Part of that has been taking money from mutual funds into ETFs, uh, but the rest is just having the ability and the access to some of these you know great sub uh, sectors that you can uh, use in your portfolio to diversify in in different ways. Uh, so I think that you know. From an ETF standpoint, that's a that's a big part of it. The other thing is you think about other products like let's call it like robo investing. Mm-hmm. So the ability to to put your money where you don't have to have a whole like five hundred thousand dollars to put it in a particular portfolio, and we'll actually go back and reallocate the portfolio if if the stocks become too heavily weighted in the portfolio, there'll be a readjustment, get you back to where your risk tolerance is. So these are the ideas that these are these are products that are growing. Uh, and there's definitely interest in it. And I think that the it, a lot of it's come from the movement of quite a few investors that are coming from the full service firms into the, the online trading firms. What's next? So you mentioned that the industry is always evolving, the rise of robo in the last few years, a sort of automatic portfolio allocation is big. On the roadmap, as you look ahead, what are what do you see around the corner for where the space is going to go? Yeah, I, I think technology continues to play a really large part in what's going on, you know, overall. And I, I think, you know, just when you think this industry gets commoditized, there's something that sort of helps accelerate what's happening in a particular marketplace. I, I think that, you know, as we, you know, we look at our customers and I, I put them in three categories. One is do it yourself. The other one is do it with me. So we, we, I need a little help, but I don't want to delegate my portfolio. Then there's sort of like, how do I just delegate? I just want to give yeah. you my money and just, I want you to run it. I have no time. It's the tools and the the tools and the ability to educate these clients is to me is, is the game changer. It's like, we, we want to, we have an invested uh, stake in making our clients successful. Right. So everything that we do is all about risk management. How do we actually take and scale the educational offerings that we have to more clients today uh, is something that we're really pushing on. So I think education is really a big thing for us to make sure that we can uh, make them very successful and teach them about great products like options where, you know, typically people are like, wow, those are very you know risky products, but you know, actually, they're very conservative as well if you use them properly. How do we educate them to help them generate income in their portfolio or protect their portfolio if they're worried about the market going down? So I mentioned this earlier in the intro, but I'm really interested in what kind of data the retail brokerages like E-Trade, like TD Ameritrade get to see from their customers and how useful it is in sort of predicting, I guess, the durability or the fragility of a stock market rally. What kind of stuff do you get to see? And at what point do you start seeing behavior or what type of behavior would suggest to you that investors are getting, you know, a little bit too excited or a little bit too euphoric about equities. Yeah, we've had a good run. I mean, there's been this has been a ten year plus run that we've had in the marketplace. So I think that the enthusiasm still t- remains pretty high. And if you went into last year, it's sort of it's the first year in ten years that we've had 
a downward market, but I, you know, we still saw net flows coming into the marketplace at that point in time. So clients, clients were buying on dips in general um, at, at E-Trade. So I think there's still a lot of confidence in the marketplace for, from, as a long-term investor. We try to teach our clients that you know, from the short term, make sure that your risk tolerance is proper, your portfolio matches your risk tolerance. Uh, and if you look at, um, like, let's say February 5th, when the market uh, went down tremendously that day, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an opportune time for people to take a look saying, were you comfortable with how your portfolio performed on that given day? Mm. If not, it's time to make some adjustments. Uh, you don't want to make them when the market is going down. You want to do it when things are a bit more rational. So I think that's a, that's a time when people started to think about how they reallocate their portfolio. So I think for right now, you know, people are, are still very confident in the marketplace. Uh, that could change. But the one thing that's really changed, I think, in the marketplace is the volatility. And the volatility has created, you know, again, a bit more anxiety for some investors. Are they comfortable being in that environment? How do we teach people how to invest or trade in a volatile market environment? So if you think about it, the market went up or down 1% 67 times last year. In 2017, it happened less than 10 times. Yeah. So you think about sort of the different market that we have today. Will it become less, you know, volatile? I would argue it will not. But we have to reteach investors how to stomach these types of movements in the in the stock market on a given day and still remain long-term investors. From a business model standpoint, E-Trade started off as just an online trading platform, but it has everything now, right? I mean, there's like, you can get a mortgage there, right? Not anymore. Oh, not anymore? No. no it was a thing at one point? It was until it, until it wasn't a good thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, I mean, you see different um, platforms sort of going to different degrees in terms of how much they want to be a full-fledged bank. You have something like uh, SoFi coming at it from the lending side. Now they're adding uh, more online trading. Is there a range for sort of different uh, size and scope of the full financial services, or is everyone just going to sort of eventually offer everything? Yeah, I think it, it depends on everyone uh, what they're trying to achieve. I mean, you know, at E-Trade, we have a bank. We've had a bank since the 90s. It's, yeah. been a, it's been part of our fabric of how we do, and it's very integrated into our particular offering. Not everybody has a bank. You know, someone like TD Ameritrade does not have a bank, even mm-hmm. though they've got a large ownership in that company, in, in Ameritrade. So everybody's got a different model of how they want to go about doing things. But I would agree that we're continuing to offering. If the clients have a, have a need, you will see more of the brokers find a way to offer it at a lower price. So if there's some things that the full service industry or another industry is doing that's charging high fees for it, and we're able to break down the barriers and give access, whether it be hopefully online at a lower cost and help the clients out, we'll always be looking for opportunities in that, that area. Well, uh, fascinating to have you here. Chris Larkin of E-Trade, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for uh, inviting me back to Bloomberg. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Tracy, this topic fills me with uh, so much nostalgia, and it really is fascinating <laughs> thinking about how much is new and has changed in the last two decades. Like, I know I didn't know what an ETF was. Like, I guess they existed when I first got interested in the market, but I certainly wasn't aware of them. The idea of things like education about portfolio risk or uh, automated robo-portfolios, like, it really is sort of, like, bewildering how different this landscape is than it was in the late 90s. It makes me sad, Joe, because I feel like I missed out on the golden age of active individual equities trading. And now it's really boring because it's just, oh, put your money in, you know, this S&P 500 index tracker. 
Yeah. Well, you know, as Chris said, there are still like people of our generation still buy stocks. Like, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, people are at GE, we could buy and IBM and Berkshire Hathaway. Like if we wanted to buy uh, the stocks from our generation, we still could. Uh, I don't know if I want to buy GE at this point. <laughs> I'm just being but a little maybe. facetious. Yeah. Um, but, you know, also this question of, well, the thing that I find really interesting is whether or not the platform itself has influenced investor yes. behavior. You know, you hear this all the time, like people talk about how ETFs, you can buy them with the click of a button, and maybe that makes people... I guess more accustomed to instantaneous gratification. Maybe it makes people more unused to losses because they're maybe kind of getting used to the notion that they can just get rid of their stuff very easily as well. I, yeah. I don't know. It's a sort of open-ended question. No, absolutely. I th And I think that's a theme that we've hit multiple times on this podcast, like the sort of the connection between the vehicle through which one can buy the asset and then the price behavior of the asset. Again, you certainly saw it in uh, crypto in 2017. You see it in real estate. People are always sort of inventing new ways of funneling one's uh, money into an asset class. And I think by definition, that ends up changing how it uh, trades and prices at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Topher Forges. He's at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. 